if we think about the, the less practical stuff, the astronomy and the cosmology, the, the things that are not going to change what you eat for breakfast next week or what happens when you get sick, the value in that is sort of cultural in that it gives you the big picture and answers to questions of how did we get here and what else is out there that you can't get from any other field. So why do we live on a planet that is round and has this much silicon and oxygen in it? How can we understand the conditions that led to us being here in the first place? And the only way you're going to get at questions like that is by understanding the, the physics that's going on in the universe. Hi there, my name's Danny. I'm fascinated by big questions and cutting edge research, but over time, I found that a lot of the outlets that explore these ideas really lack a uh, Canadian perspective. So join me as I sit down with some fascinating minds in Canada, and together you and I can explore the world around us and some of the really cool work that Canadian thinkers are doing. All right, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Dr. Pauline Barnby is a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Western University and currently serves as co-chair of the Canadian Astronomy 2020 Long Range Plan. Dr. Barnby came to Western from the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, where she worked on the Spitzer Space Telescope and used it to study topics including distant galaxies and variable stars in the Milky Way. Her current research focuses on nearby galaxies, particularly the Andromeda Galaxy M31 and other galaxies in our local group. Dr. Barnby has also been regarded as quite the problem solver among faculty at Western University, having served as Associate Dean of Graduate and Postdoctoral Studies in the Faculty of Science, and was also the Acting Dean of Science. And a fun fact, my undergrad degree was in physics at Western, and I've actually taken a class with her and know Dr. Barnby quite well. Um, so we had a lot of fun this episode, and I'm really excited to have her join us today to talk about Canada's long-term plan to study space. I hope you enjoy. Uh, and as always, you can reach me at stage2podcast at gmail.com. That's the number two with any questions, comments, and concerns. You know, the joke that we tell people is that if you're on an airplane and you want to talk to the person sitting next to them, you tell them you're an astronomer. And if you don't want to talk to them, you tell them you're a physicist. But in practical terms, um, Astrophysics and astronomy are essentially the same thing these days. So astrophysics is the application of physics to things outside the Earth. So stars, planets, galaxies, the whole universe. Why would you want to do that? Well, you want to understand the universe because it's part of how we got to be here. Um, the Earth would not have life and tacos and other important things if the universe hadn't unfolded in a specific way. It's also the case that if you want to understand certain realms of physics, there's physical conditions that happen in the, elsewhere in the universe that we can't replicate on Earth. Vacuums that have so few atoms that there's an atom every cubic meter or something like that. Or conversely, very high densities or very high temperatures or low temperatures. Again, things that we can't replicate in Earth-based labs. So the process of astrophysics is really about those two sides of the story, using the universe to understand physics and using physics to understand the universe. 
So how did you find yourself drawn to the field that you're in? I mean, you mentioned kind of these bigger existential questions. And so I just have like this feeling that, you know, that is something that drew you to the field itself. Uh, it is in part. And, and sure, I want to know the, the history of the Milky Way galaxy and how we got to be here. Uh, I kind of got into astronomy from a different angle, which is that as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, I mean, I still do, but now I'm too old. So, uh, but then I found out that you kind of have to have a day job. You can't just go to astronaut school. You have to study something related. And, and that seemed like the obvious thing to me. So in astronomy and astrophysics, one of the bigger things that's relevant to the kind of research you can do is the access to different facilities like telescopes and observatories. And being at a place like the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which is where I was for my graduate work, gave me access to lots of things that I might not have had access to in Canada. It was certainly a much bigger organization than any observatory or university astronomy department in, in Canada. And as somebody who you know, knew they wanted to do astronomy, but wasn't quite sure what area I wanted to work in, that um, appealed to me. So pretty much any topic I could have thought of, I could have worked on there. Right. And I would imagine for a discipline that is so, I mean, beyond nation states in so many ways, there are so many immense opportunities to, to take those learnings across the globe, really. And so, I mean, you highlighted, you know, access to important tools uh, that enabled you to do the work and the research that you were doing. And, you know, using different telescopes at different locations around the globe is important to observe different things in space from various perspectives. And I know that the astronomical community has built out a bit of a, a strong system for researchers around the globe to effectively share uh, telescopes. And so I, I was hoping you could kind of explain to the audience how that works, because myself in second year, I, I had reserved time with a telescope. I forget exactly where it was, but it was like a northern country in South America. But yeah, would you be able to explain kind of how that network of telescopes works? So there's a couple of reasons that astronomers need more than one telescope. And some of it is simply the fact that the Earth is round. If you think of the fact that the Earth is round and then you think of the sky as sort of a shell surrounding the Earth, if you're standing on the South Pole of the Earth, you can't see the Northern sky because the Earth is in the way. If you're standing right. on the North Pole, you can't see the South Pole. And so you need, if you put a telescope on the equator, you can see the whole sky at different times of year. On the, but the bad thing is that the equator has a lot of places on land where the weather is not very good. Um, it doesn't matter if you can see the sky if the clouds are in the way. So we put telescopes at locations on the earth where the weather is good, where they're far away from city lights and um, with a range of both southern and northern um, latitudes. If we're thinking about monitoring things that change in time, then you also want telescopes at different longitudes because you want to have a telescope that's in the dark somewhere. Again, it doesn't help you look at an object that changes on timescales of a few hours if the object is below your horizon at your telescope. And so if you want to look at things um, continuously, again, you need telescopes spaced around the world. And so that has to be a really sophisticated network of, you know, especially timing things when you're trying to monitor 
celestial objects, you know, across the sky. And so how, how do you even just organize all that? I, I would imagine, you know, you have a, a researcher in Sao Paulo wanting to look at something, but they want to use the exact same telescope that you would be using in London, Ontario. So, so what, what allows that mechanism to churn effectively? What's helpful is the fact that most things don't change in time. So lots of astronomical observations can be made whenever. This week, two months from now, doesn't matter. When you're trying to organize what people sometimes call a campaign on, we want to look at the same object at the same time or almost the same time, a few hours apart, then yeah, it does require a lot of coordination and it usually involves big scientific collaborations with dozens of people probably a lot of Slack chats and Google spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. You know, if particularly exciting things happen, um, I mean, a, an example might be Oumuamua, the first interstellar asteroid that came through the, uh, the solar system a couple of years back, discovered by a Western grad, by the way. Very cool. Um, somebody puts out an alert and basically says, we've got this thing happening. It's only going to last for a certain period of time we kind of need everybody to get on on it and depending on what else other telescopes are doing that can usually be accommodated so dr barnby let's talk about the research that you're currently conducting i know that your current interests surround nearby galaxies like andromeda but what are you curious about and looking into and why are you doing so so i would say that the in my particular field, I'm interested in trying to understand, I guess you could call it the ecosystems of a galaxy. Um, how do the stars and the gas in a galaxy interact? So the gas forms new stars, the stars at the end of their lifetimes release some gas back into the galaxy, which can then form new stars. There's often some gravitational interaction with the giant black hole at the center of the galaxy. There's things like star clusters, which form large groups of stars and can be used to trace back the histories of galaxies. So the kind of questions that we're trying to answer are general long-term questions. How do the global properties of a galaxy affect what's going on inside and vice versa? So how, do, you know, how does gas turn into stars? What, what shapes that complex process? And then how do stars release that gas and how does it get recycled in galaxies? So we know the general outline of how that works, but there's lots of specific details that are still things we're trying to figure out. And how we decide what to work on is often somewhat technologically driven in that we have this giant new telescope, we can now see stars fainter than we could before or with finer detail, or we can measure um, some kind of gas that we couldn't detect before because we didn't have the right radio telescope. And so sometimes the questions that we ask are driven by what it's feasible to answer. For example, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have bothered trying to answer questions about um, X-ray binary stars in other galaxies because you couldn't really measure where those things were accurately enough to even say whether they were in the galaxy or not. So it wasn't a useful question to work on. But now we have uh, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which can do that kind of thing. So 
the big picture that in in my particular field because it's kind of I would say it's not we're not exploring totally new physics right we're not kind of at the what happens at the rim of a black hole or that kind of um, completely extreme situation so I would say that the questions we answer are driven by both what have we already figured out and then what are the new capabilities that we couldn't address questions with before you know that sort of problem solving within a set of constraints and you know those constraints would you know be shared by your colleagues in the field i'm just starting to realize that you know i exist within a like a splice of time within human history and there is not that there's necessarily a, a reason that i'm here but there is something for me to do while I am here. That's, that's, very, that's very interesting. It's you know, working within those constraints of what is capable now, but I'm sure you know, the work that you're doing is something to be built upon future generations of astrophysicists and astronomers. Yeah, I mean, the work I did for my PhD thesis is now not quite obsolete, but, but getting close to that. And that's kind of disheartening in some ways, but in other ways, it's it's obsolete because other people built on it and, and expanded on it and did other things. So that's just the nature of, of science. Dr. Barbie, you are the co-chair of the 2020 Canadian Long Range Plan for Astronomy and Astrophysics, which we'll call LRP 2020 for short. So what exactly is LRP 2020 and, and what are the objectives of what you're doing? So we've kind of already talked about how astronomers need more than one telescope and we also need shared telescopes because these are giant research facilities that uh, an individual researcher, individual university, sometimes not even an individual country can afford to build by themselves. And so there's lots of ideas about, well, what should the next generation of really big telescope, for example, look like? Um, should it be a radio telescope where you have a bunch of different antennas um, scattered around a large area in one country? Should it be a big optical telescope that has one giant mirror that's 30 meters across? Should it be a space mission, which is going to measure one particular aspect of the cosmic microwave background? And so there's lots of different future facilities and, and future ways that we can organize how research is done in astrophysics. And the idea of LRP 2020 is to try to look at all of this stuff to say, okay, where are we now? You know, what is Canada good at in our particular field? What have been some of our successes in the past? Where have things perhaps not gone so well? And then what do we think is necessary to move forward on the big science questions that are important now? And, and those big science questions, of course, change with time. So you want to have the right tools for the job. And the idea of the LRP 2020 process is to try to come to some kind of community consensus about what those big tools, what those next steps are, with the idea being that there are more cool projects than our country can afford to pile money into. And it's better if we have a community understanding that project A is our highest priority and B is next, and C unfortunately didn't make the cut, then 
if you and I each start talking to our MPs and lobbying for our favorite project, because often that makes the community look like it doesn't really know what it's doing. So we're trying to come up with a unified community consensus on this is the package of things that we need in order to make progress in this field. So you're essentially trying to corral all of these really big picture thinkers, brilliant minds like yourself, um, who I'm sure have their own priorities um, and have some really big opinions. And so what is that process like to corral everyone and bring them towards sort of singular strategic objectives? So, yeah, so we have a, our, our LRP panel is a panel of eight people, which covers as much expertise in astrophysics that we, as we could fit into eight people, and that covers as many universities and genders and backgrounds as we could get. We started this by asking for uh, community submissions. So we asked everybody in the Canadian astronomical community to write these things we call the white papers and tell us about their favorite project. And then we had a series of town halls where we went to different places in the country back when you could still travel and discussed some of these issues. So what are the various options in radio astronomy or what kinds of space missions can we foresee Canada being involved in or how can Canadian astronomy be more equitable and diverse and inclusive? How should we include Indigenous perspectives? So all of that was kind of input. And then we had a long series of meetings where we argued about, well, I think Project X is more exciting than Project Y. And we had laid out a set of criteria in advance for how we decided what were the important, um, the most important projects. We were particularly interested in projects where Canada was not just a tiny partner, but where we could provide leadership. Projects where um, Canadian industry could be involved, and, and that's particularly important, for example, for space missions, because the Canadian Space Agency is very interested in building up the Canadian industrial capacity. We were interested in projects where there's good opportunity for training students and postdocs, and we have a list of a number of other things. We wanted projects that weren't too risky, um, projects that did not depend on some other country raising a billion dollars from private donors or something like that, uh, some, some thing which might not happen. So we, we took all these projects that people had produced, we ranked them in order, and then we wrote sort of a draft document which described those priorities, we gave that back to the community back in about May. Um, they came back and told us we were all wrong, or at least some of them did. And you know, there's never gonna be community consensus on this kind of thing because what different astrophysicists are interested in and what they think are important problems is not gonna be the same for everybody. You can't make everybody happy. You can kind of hope to make everyone equally unhappy or at least to convey that you've made your decisions in a transparent way, consistent with the criteria that you laid out. So we got a bunch of feedback on that first set of priorities and we're kind of now finalizing that. And then we're also working on finishing the rest of this giant report that will go with it, which gives some of the background and history, you know, how many astronomers are there in Canada and how much money is spent on astronomy and that sort of thing. We're also making recommendations on things that are not big telescopes, but things like um, 
how agencies should work together or how postdocs should be funded, things like that. And that's part of the final report as well. And will hopefully be finished by January or so. And, and this is a very political process that you've undertaken. And you mentioned, you know, within the community itself. But then I think about afterwards when you've created this sort of long range, you know, strategic plan, the, you know, the next steps. And I don't know if you yourself are involved in those next steps specifically, but in engaging with, I, you know, I imagine universities, well, starting with faculties themselves and then the universities as a whole, but also our political institutions and our political bodies and trying to make the case, right, that it's worth the investment in terms of research output, economic productivity. What does that look like? How does the physics community, after aligning under a big strategic objective, then go about kind of pitching the case? So there's a couple of different things that happen. Um, there is a lobby group that's called the Coalition for Canadian Astronomy, which is a combination of, of, of industry uh, companies that are involved in astronomy-related activity, universities, and professional society for astronomers. And so that group will do some direct lobbying of the usual kind where they write um, budget submissions for the federal budget, they go to Ottawa to meet uh, MPs or people in the finance ministry. That effort is starting pretty soon, in fact, and that's part of why we're trying to get part of our recommendations done more quickly than others. There's a number of federal agencies that fund astronomy in Canada. The Canadian Space Agency is one, the Canada Foundation for Innovation is one, the National Research Council is one, and so our report will go to those bodies and they can decide whether to take our advice or leave it, of course. We will also be talking to universities and particularly vice president's research at universities and um, asking them to support the projects that, that are important. And particularly, of course, to astronomers at that university, which will vary depending on where, where they are. So a lot of this stuff is organized through CASCA, which is the Professional Society of Astronomers in Canada. And we're not responsible for that as the LRP panel. We kind of hand the report off to them and they run with it, which is good because we're just going to pass out from exhaustion. What are some of the exciting opportunities, if you're allowed to share, some of the exciting opportunities that you and your colleagues have identified over, I, LRP 2020 is to range for about 10 years, right? And so what are those opportunities and why do you believe that it would be important for policymakers to be tuned into what you and you know the rest of the community are, are pushing for? As these projects get bigger and bigger, it's almost the case that the decadal timescale is too short because some of the things that were recommended in the 2010 long range plan are still pending. And that there are various reasons for that, some of which are international partners are needed for these projects and so they need to have a certain kind of momentum to go on. Um, others have had issues with the actual sites at where the telescope is going to go and so the there's been delays in um, in starting to construct the telescope so the two highest priorities that were in the last lrp were a very large optical telescope which we of course call a v lot 
And in particular, the last long range plan recommended that we be involved in the 30 meter telescope, which is uh, supposed to be currently scheduled to be constructed on the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii, but that may change. And that is still going to be something that Canadians are interested in participating in at some level in some form. And that's a very uncertain situation at the moment, which makes making these long range plans very interesting. So that's a, a 30 meter very large optical telescope is something that that is going to be a priority somewhere in our plan, as is what's called the square kilometer array. So that's a very large radio telescope where the kilometer is the collecting area of the telescope. It's not one big one square kilometer thing. It's a whole bunch of, of smaller dishes spread out over a large area, both in South Africa and Australia. And so that's, again, something the Canadian astronomers are very interested in. There are a couple of newer projects which weren't really on the horizon in 2010 that are now coming to the point where they may become interesting. And so again, there's one radio and one optical telescope. And, uh, and those are not yet, um, that information is not quite yet public. So, so the details of that are still pending. There are lots of smaller projects as well, which are not the billion dollar scales like these things I just talked about. And again, those things tend to come up on much shorter time scales. So there are a couple of space missions that Canadians are particularly interested in participating in. A couple of them are led by other countries, by the European Space Agency and by the Japanese Space Agency. There's also a project that lots of Canadians are interested in, which would be Canada's first space telescope where we are the leaders as opposed to a partner and um, that's been that's been a subject of, of recommendations for a while and again that's going to be in our mix and then there are a number of smaller projects on the ground as well um, an example of a smaller project that was recommended in the lrp 2010 process was something called chime that's a radio telescope that lives out in the interior of british columbia and a proposed new project that is kind of the evolution of chime called cord of course, these, all, these things all have kind of cute acronyms that I can't remember what they stand for. Um, but that, um, that CORD project is, again, something that'll be in, our, uh, in the mix of recommendations. And so we kind of cover the waterfront. There's radio telescopes and optical, or, and optical telescopes. There's ultraviolet and infrared. There's telescopes on the ground and telescopes in space. And you kind of need all those things in order to give the capacity, the capabilities to answer the questions that we're the most interested in. The themes are actually pretty, the science themes are pretty general and, and they're things which evolve from decade to decade, but not in a completely fundamental way. So you can imagine that one of the things astronomers want to understand is how did the universe evolve? How did it get from a very homogeneous, very early state where it was almost smooth to this pretty lumpy state that we see around us today where there's regions that have lots of stuff, you know, the earth and, and even galaxies have lots of stuff and regions where there's pretty much nothing. And so how did gravity and other forces work together to, to make that evolution of structure in the universe? And you can study that in a couple of ways. One of them is to study the very early universe, 
So you study the, the nearly smooth early universe, the cosmic microwave background. And another one is to study the uh, distribution of the material right around us. So to figure out where is the missing hot gas or the missing dark matter around galaxies and things like that. Another big theme is this idea of, well, what is the physics of the extreme universe? So how do things really work very close to a black hole? What do our neutron stars really made out of and how do they behave? Things that, again, we can't look at in Earth-based laboratories because you can't make those conditions in Earth laboratories. But often you need, for example, X-ray telescopes to do that kind of analysis because this very hot, dense matter is often emitting X-rays. And to observe X-rays from the universe, you need a space telescope because X-rays from outside the Earth don't make it through the atmosphere. So that's a big thing. We want to know about planetary systems around other stars. And this is a field that's really exploded kind of in the last 20 years. So the first extrasolar planet was discovered about 25 years ago exactly, uh, which I know because it was right when I was starting graduate school. And since then, we now know of thousands of planets around other stars in our Milky Way. And we know something about what they're like. We know that there are lots of um, what's called hot Jupiters, very close in planets that are as massive as Jupiter, but way closer to their stars. We know a little bit about the smaller, rockier planets like Earth, but those things are harder to detect, so they're, they're harder to find out more about. The next step is not just do these things exist, but what are they made out of and what are their atmospheres like and could they support life? Do they have water? Do they have solid surfaces? And for a lot of that kind of work, you need a super big telescope because you need to be able to see fine detail in order to separate the light from the planet, the tiny amount of light that comes from the planet, from the much bigger amount of light right next to it that comes from its star. And with a super big telescope, you can do that. You can block out the light from the star and just see the light from the planet and so on. So there's some exciting new technology that allows you to do that. A lot of it was developed in Canada. And uh, so that's a big area. And then the sort of general thing that brings a lot of that stuff together is kind of my own area, which is how do stars and galaxies form? Again, how does gas turn into stars? How do magnetic fields play a role? How um, do stars release gas back to galaxies at the end of their lives? And that sort of thing. How do galaxies interact with each other? And um, so all of these are kind of multifaceted questions. And, and that's why you need more than one telescope because, uh, for example, you want to see the gas in a galaxy, you need a radio telescope because the gas is quite cold and it doesn't emit light that we can see with our eyes, it emits radio waves. Whereas if you want to see the young stars, you need a telescope that can see ultraviolet because the young stars are very hot and they're emitting a lot of ultraviolet light. So that's why you need this suite of facilities to do this all, all this kind of work. You know, I can't help but wonder space exploration is similarly to most scientific research a political endeavor perhaps apathetically and you know pursued by nation states and so i mean the example that i think everyone kind of knows is you know in the 50s and the 60s the u.s being locked in a race with the soviet union in space you know born out of the cold war and 
so that's kind of an example of the 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 battle, if you will, to in, in that case to demonstrate dominance on the global stage uh, in terms of science and technology. But we've also seen physics and science, uh, for example, the Large Hadron Collider, as something that has sort of unified us beyond uh, the borders, these weird things that we abide by. So, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to get your perspective as, you know, someone on the science side who, you know, maybe sometimes finds themselves caught in the middle of, you know, these political endeavors and pursuits and get your perspective on, I don't even know exactly the question I'm trying to ask, but your perspective on, on the politics of space, if you will. A lot of space is more cooperative than it is competitive. Um, particularly now, as opposed to 50 or 60 years ago. Um, you know, if you think about the International Space Station, it's this international collaborative effort. And yes, the Americans and the Russians don't always get see eye to eye on exactly how to run the thing, but they do run the thing together. They're not shooting at each other while they're running it. Um, and in astronomy, the kinds of facilities that we want, that we the astronomers want, are now so expensive that every country can't have their own. And, and maybe, maybe even, you know, everybody in the world's got to share this thing because we don't have enough money to build two of them. So in, in general, I think, you know, it's more cooperative than competitive. So that's not to say that there aren't some aspects of national prestige involved, for sure. Um, the U.S. is also having a similar decadal survey process as us right now in astronomy. And true to form, theirs is 10 times bigger than ours. Uh, they have lots more staff and lots more people involved. And if you read some of the submissions to that process, you see some language about the U.S. maintaining its dominant position in world astronomy that you would not see in the Canadian submissions, because it's clear we're a smaller partner. We're not dominating every area of world astronomy. There are a few areas where we do actually dominate in a few particular topics within astronomy. So there's still some aspects of, of national prestige, and but there's also lots of aspects of international cooperation. And some of the national prestige things is also not just America discovered the first black hole or Canada discovered the most distant galaxy. It's more in questions of what do these projects do for our country more broadly than just lead to another paper in science or nature. And um, for example, one of the world's leading designers of telescope domes is a Vancouver-based company, which got its start uh, designing the dome for the Canada-France Hawaii telescope in Hawaii and went on to exploit that expertise in weirdly shaped steel structures, shall we say, to amusement park rides and other large things made out of steel that are kind of one-offs. And there are lots of other examples of places where technology developed for astronomy has been um, exploited and expanded into areas that are not astronomy. And so that is kind of a broader benefit to Canada, as is the more general, we train people, right? The, the, what we produce in astronomy, for the most part, is not better widgets. We're not 
doing astronomy so that we can make better amusement park rides, although it's cool when that happens. We're not curing disease or making your car have better mileage or whatever, but we're training smart people. And often those smart people don't um, continue to work in astronomy. Often they end up in other fields where they contribute to the economy in other ways. So if I think of the people that I've trained as graduate and undergraduate students, they are working in finance or they're working at the Globe and Mail as data scientists or they're working in lots of other fields. And what did astronomy have to do with that? Well, maybe it got them into a technical field in the first place. They didn't go to, um, you know, they didn't go into, uh, into some other area, but they went into some field where they would get quantitative problem solving expertise that they could then apply to, to lots of different areas. It's kind of a thing that gives me hope when you mention the fact that, you know, the space is more cooperative than adversarial and that, you know, we're, we're kind of now uniting behind these much bigger questions that we have as a species rather than as a citizen of a given nation state. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier when you're talking about research, looking at if certain planets have potential life uh, on them. And I definitely, you know, while I have you, do want to ask you some more out there, more philosophical sorts of questions, because I'm sure it's something that yourself and your colleagues have pondered, you know, throughout your throughout your lives. And first, I think there's the the binary question of whether we're alone or not. My gut feeling is no, but my rational self says we may never know um, that we may be separated from other intelligent life in the universe, either in space or in time, in such a way that we're just not going to find out. I think we will have a good idea within um, my lifetime, and certainly within yours, of whether there are planets elsewhere in the galaxy that have the conditions for life, and maybe even whether they have bacterial life, and, and life that, in a, in a sense that can affect a planet on a planetary scale. So if you have certain kinds of life, you expect the atmospheric chemistry to be different than if you have a lifeless planet. And I think there's a good chance that we could detect that kind of stuff. But are we going to know whether there's turtles or just bacteria? I don't know. That's a lot more difficult. And, you know, people often ask me, well, if we discover this life, are we going to be able to go there? And the answer is no. Um, it, the distances are too far and the timescales are too long that we could start out going there, but you and I are never going to know. The, we might send the spacecraft, but we're not going to know the answer. And are we ready for that kind of, you know, thousand year project as a civilization? I would argue we're having trouble with the shorter term problems at the moment. And so I, I don't know that we are quite yet. The discussion about intelligent life, and, and there's so many different routes that we can go right now. Um, part of me is, you know, uh, one part of me thinks, you know, intelligence too, it's, it's very subjective in the way that we define human intelligence and how we have created our, you know, rational structures. And, but part of me thinks, you know, if there is something out there and there anything like humans, I'd be terrified. We are 
and and you know due to our survival based instincts we are terrified of the unknown and so we act in ways that are that would be terrifying for me to be on the receiving end of and so part of me thinks like is is it even worth it should we even bother but we have the collective sort of curiosity that we do have of figuring out if we're if we're alone and it's so interesting that there are people out there who think that knowing the answer to that question would change everything how we think about religion and politics and philosophy and there are other people who are like yeah only a few people would actually care and the rest of us would just go on watching tiktok and so yeah the only way we'll know is if if we find the answer right but Okay, so there's something that I have to ask you, and it's something I'm curious about and have been for a while. I don't know if you have the answers or if you can tell me the answers, um, but do you believe that global organizations like the United Nations have a collective strategy for if we are ever to come into contact with you know, something like in alien intelligence? Part of me thinks that you know, if we have these conflicts going on between nation states and then all of a sudden someone from up above just comes into contact with us what what do we do do we just all stop what we're doing and just say look folks like it's time to focus on this much bigger issue in front of us so some of your guide to this should be science fiction because lots of very clever people have spent lots of time thinking about this kind of thing um and certainly there's a school which says well okay if there was this existential threat we just put all our petty disagreements aside and uh and figure out what to do. I do not know if there is a, you know, black binder somewhere with a plan for what happens if, 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 you know, if the alien spaceship shows up on the White House lawn, then who knows? There is a global plan for things on a little smaller scale, like um, what's usually called planetary defense, in that if we discover, for example, an asteroid, which has a reasonably high potential of impact, on earth there you know there actually is a plan and people have planetary defense conferences to talk about this kind of stuff and there is a plan for who does what when and that kind of thing is there a plan for what happens if we get the alien species message nobody has showed me that plan so i don't know if it exists or not maybe in summarizing our our conversation that we've had you know myself having studied my undergraduate degree in physics, which I, would, I wouldn't change for the world. The skills that I've gained of quantitative analysis, problem solving within given conditions and constraints have been so valuable to me, oftentimes in ways I can't explicitly describe. Kind of now extrapolating that into the work and the research that is being done on the national stage. What would be your case, you know, in, in expressing the importance of physics-based literacy, astronomy, why is it important for us to know what's going on and for us to care about uh, the priorities that we're making in, in, in your fields? So there's a couple answers to that question. There's a couple of ways that you can describe the benefits of, of physics and astronomy research. There's areas of physics and astronomy that do have direct impact on everyday life people who develop better MRI systems or work out ways to make better water filters with new materials or understand how blood flows in a clot in the brain or something like that. Um, and so those make people's lives better, we hope, on a, on a daily kind of basis. 
there's what I would call kind of the physics mindset, the way that we approach problems in physics, which is a little bit different from how people approach understanding the world in if they're economists or if they're chemists or if they're historians. We try to break problems down into their simplest pieces, things that are consistent with the laws of the universe as we currently understand them, but that can, um, where all the detail and the interesting thing is how those laws intersect and how they change in time. And I think that's a particular, you know, that's a unique way of looking at the world. If you're a physicist, you might claim it as a superior way of looking at the world. I'm not sure I would agree, but I think it provides a valuable way of breaking down problems that, that other perspectives don't. And then if we, if we think about the, the less practical stuff, the astronomy and the cosmology, the, the things that are not gonna change what you eat for breakfast next week or what happens when you get sick. Some of that, the value in that is sort of cultural in that it gives you the big picture and answers to questions of how did we get here and what else is out there that you can't get from any other field. So why do we live on a planet that is round and has this much silicon and oxygen in it? How can we understand the conditions that led to us being here in the first place? And the only way you're going to get at questions like that is by understanding the, the physics that's going on in the universe. Dr. Barnby, what is something you are cur currently curious about and learning more of, whether that's, you know, a book, a TV series, an area of research, whatever it may be? So we talked a little bit about this before we started. And, and so one thing I'm learning about, much to my surprise, is how to edit my own video because I'm doing it for my course. I'm not sure that's gonna become a major hobby in, my, uh, in, in the future of my life. But um, I've always been a big reader. I am, like many astronomers and physicists, we tend to either love science fiction or hate it. I'm in the love camp, um, but that's not the only thing I read. I've gotten more interested lately in thinking about writing, about not only the kind of nonfiction that I write all the time, you could argue that maybe the long range plan is science fiction, I don't know, um, but also writing fiction and, and telling stories. And so that's something that I have been fooling around with in my copious spare time lately is trying to understand more about how do you tell a story, what makes a story compelling, um, what makes a story interesting. Sounds like an exciting journey. Um, Dr. Barnby, I think that's a great place to end this episode. Um, I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your day to join me to discuss all the cool work, the incredible work that you and your team are doing uh, with LRP 2020. I'm wishing you all the best during these very odd times, especially now that the semester is up and running again. And yeah, I you know we had some fun. It was always nice to catch up, crack some jokes. Not all of them made them made it into the episode. But yeah, all the best and thanks again for joining you us. You are welcome. Great talking to you. And thanks to all of you for once again tuning in to the Stage 2 podcast with me, Danny Chang, um, where we discussed with Dr. Pauline Barnby, the co-chair of LRP 2020, which is Canada's long-range plan for the next decade on studying space. Artwork for the show is made by Gladys Ng, and the music for the show 
is complicated by chris o'day which you can find anywhere you find your music uh as always this show is produced edited recorded by me um, and is done in my spare time there's a tip jar link in the description if you want to help out with hosting costs um as always you can reach me at stage2podcast at gmail.com that's the number two uh, with any questions comments and concerns thanks again and see you next time